Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Andy! Pete? Do you remember what you were doing five years ago tonight? Oh, let's think. Five years ago tonight, would that be 11, 11, 11? It was 11, 11, 11. Do you remember what you were doing and who you were doing it with? (laughs) Pete, that's awfully personal. (laughs) What was I doing, Pete? Do you know? You were doing, you were talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, Andy, and you were doing it with me five years ago today. Sort of. Yes, I was, Pete. I do remember. Do you have anything to say about five years, about what you have, about the the in, immensity of the hours, the sheer total hours that you have wasted over the last five years with me? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have wasted it with a better person. There you go, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. Five yeah. years. It's it's hard to believe that it's hit, uh, that it's been that long. And uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Here's to another five. And more. That's right. You know, we only have 351 episodes to hit that uh, the vaunted 700. Oh, we can do it. And then beyond that. Fish in a barrel. 1150. So here here you go, Andy. I'm raising my water bottle in a toast to you. Five years. Yay. (laughs) This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight in the show. It's number two in our Betty Davis extravaganza with Irving Rapper's 1942 film, Now Voyager. 
Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're asking yourself, surely The Next Reel wouldn't be able to find another movie in which Betty Davis kills someone due to resentful inaction, could they? <laughs> Gear up for The Next Reel's Instagram Betty Davis Murderthon in the hashtag Pony Prize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's tune in with Games Master Stephen Smart, stuck on the side of a road on Sugarloaf Mountain, to find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was The Negotiator from 1998, directed by F. Gary Gray and starring Samuel L. Jackson, Kevin Spacey, and David Morse. Congrats to at NoTO who guessed it on image one. You're entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks guys and see you later. We've got a blot spot uh, follow up. A friend of the show, Ben Lott, wrote us to talk about the little foxes. My initial reaction to The Little Foxes was that it felt very much like a stage production. While the camera placement was brilliant, the set design and blocking of the actors was a little flat. I have to agree with Pete that it took some time to catch up on who was who and what was happening. But once I was on board, I thought the acting performances were very good. And they helped to make this a film I kinda liked. Your rank 225, my rank 149. (laughs) Kinda. Kinda liked it. (laughs) Yeah, hey, it's higher than us. Hey, let me tell you. I uh, I take that as a uh, I I'm curious about that and uh, m- mostly I take it as a win that he was also confused. See, Andy, I told you so. It's hard <laughs> to figure it out. Anyway, I, you know I, I acknowledge that and uh, I, I it's it's okay. it's okay. Nobody said you weren't smarter than everybody else in the room. <laughs> Nobody said that. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. <laughs> I got the red band, so I get to go first. <laughs> New rule. Okay, I just made it. it. Take it. <laughs> red band rule. Red band rule. So my trailer, um, it's it's a story about uh, a man who uh, is lost and lonely in life and unsure what to do with himself. And then he discovers that he actually had a daughter with his ex-wife, uh, and uh, she had to put her up for adoption 17 years ago. And he goes on a quest to, uh, with his ex-wife, to find their uh, their old their daughter, who is now seventeen, and kind of rekindle a, a family relationship. Now, this is actually <laughs> this is actually Gosh, a you rather... are so, like really tricking people. <laughs> I'm really tricking people because this is Woody Harrelson and Laura Dern, and it is a really kind of crass uh, uh, comedy. That looks just hilarious. It's based on the uh, a graphic novel by Daniel. Is it Close or Klaus? I'm not actually sure how you say his name. I don't but, know. But he is. I'm a, not going to uh, wade into those waters. Are you kidding? <laughs> You're going to let me uh, do this one on my own. Huh? <laughs> but he's a, he's a guy who's. Uh, I mean, he's written some screenplays. He was involved in uh, Ghost World. That's uh, another thing that uh, that he had created um, the graphic novel, and then he wrote the script for Terry Zwigoff. And I believe Art School Confidential was something of his. And so he's mm-hmm. he's somebody who has an interesting take on people and society. And his graphic novels certainly show that. 
this story, Wilson, which I had never heard of. I'd never heard of these graphic novels before or this character. But man, is it uh, just a fascinating character. And uh, Woody Harrelson really, really plays it well because he is a very crazy man. And uh, his whole quest to kind of rekindle this relationship with this daughter he never knew he had just looks for um, a really wacky, crazy time. Yet also, I feel like there's going to be a tiny bit of heart in here. So I, that was my read on the film, but uh, it got me pretty excited. What do you think of it? I don't know. I, uh, I you know, I, I like, I, I found myself chuckling about it, but I, it took me so long to figure out um, what I was chuckling at. Like, was it just that it's Woody Harrelson doing something that he happens to be good at? Like, being this foul mouth goofy guy. I, I like these these three people on screen together. I thought they were funny. I'm not sure if there's quite enough substance from the trailer to get me to really be able to feel like I can laugh at the comedy. I feel like what uh, Close is how I'm going to say his name. Close does with his characters in the stories that he does that he writes. He creates these very real, authentic characters that have so many quirks that it's just, it's such a strange world, but you can so easily kind of understand their world. And that's kind of my sense here is that this is a guy who um, is in this place where he's very kind of has this strange outlook on life, et cetera, et cetera. But through that and through this kind of quest to get more out of life by, you know, connecting with this daughter he never knew he had, I feel like there's going to be something really interesting there. So. I don't know. Maybe that's just a hope, but I'm excited to see it. It looks really kind of just cuckoo, and it's uh, definitely on my list of things to see next year. And it is actually going to be opening March 24th next year. March and, and that is, 24th. All right. That's it that is listed for release dates. USA, March 24th, 2017. That's the only place you can see this, <laughs> apparently. It's, it's, no, it's November, Andy. <laughs> that doesn't bode well. We shall see. We shall see. You know, I'm all about hope, which is why I picked my trailer for the evening. This is uh, if 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 I don't if if there isn't a movie more uh, aptly described as hopeful, it's this one about a foul-mouthed child prodigy, math prodigy, in the under the tutelage of Chris Evans. Uh, it is called Gifted, and I'm not lying. This caused me to uh, sprout a man tear right out of my big stupid face. Is that is that what you do with tears? You sprout them? <laughs> you do it right out of your face. They sprout That's out of fantastic. your face. That's what happens. Uh, this is the story of Frank. Uh, Chris Evans plays Frank. He's a single uh, man raising his niece, Mary, and it gets into a big old custody battle with his mother. He wants to raise her in a very normal school, this little girl, and the mother. His mother, her grandmother, says, no, you're denying her the potential that she has to be brilliant because she's all kinds of brilliant. She's full-on goodwill hunting brilliant. Uh, anyway, here's the thing. This is what I like about this. First of all, Chris Evans in a non-cap movie I get excited about that. I like the guy. I think getting to know him as Captain America has made me like him even more when he is not Captain America. So I'm excited to see him in this. Uh, but it also comes from director Mark Webb. And I, you know, it almost feels like he is delivering everything I liked about 500 Days of Summer 
in this movie again through this little girl, this little foul-mouthed prodigy girl, and I'm excited about him coming back around from Spider-Man and giving me a little bit of gifted. So uh, I think it looks really interesting. How did it hit you? It looks like a really interesting story, and I completely agree with everything you said about Chris Evans. What a fascinating actor to watch, especially now when he does things that are not Captain America. It just makes me so excited to see stuff that he's he's putting out there, and uh, he's really just doing unique projects. And not afraid to uh, show characters that have a lot of cracks, you know, and and I like that. Um, Plus this script, you know, Tom Flynn wrote this script. This was on the blacklist in 2014. And um, and so, you know, those scripts, they get talked about quite a bit and they uh, they can get made into some pretty interesting things. So so with all of that, I feel uh, that this is definitely something worth checking out. I do, too, and we can do it. Mine is only moderately better than yours. USA, April 12th, Germany, May 4th, UK, June 16th. That's all I got. Uh, so, you know, looks like uh, kind of a small release, but we'll, we'll see. We will hold a candle. Hmm, Andy, how does it feel to be the Lord? I didn't want to be born. You didn't want me to be born either. It was a calamity on both sides. What is the feminine for your word? That's what I am. I knew you were married and I walked right in with my eyes wide open. I'm immune to happiness. You weren't immune that night on the mountain. Do you call that happiness? My darling, you are crying. These are only tears of gratitude. Don't talk like that. You see, no one ever called me darling. The intimate journal of Miss Charlotte Babe whole secret life hidden up here behind a locked door. It's worse than Lisa led me to suppose. Much worse. I can only hope that a shameful episode of your life is completely past. Come out at once. Go to your cabin. I don't care. I'm glad. I can't work in the dark when there's a child in the picture. I'll tell you everything. Now Voyager, Andy, 1942, directed by Irving Rapper, uh, written by Casey Robinson, who did the adaptation off of Olive Higgins Prouty's novel of the same name. Yeah. Stars Betty Davis, Paul Henry, Claude Rains, Gladys Cooper, Benita Granville, John Loder, and many other wonderful people in this film. This was my first time seeing it. I know you are a, a, a Betty Davis uh, a booster, part of the Betty Davis Booster Club. And this is uh, our second movie in your challenge to get me acquainted and convert me into a Betty Davis lover. Uh, how did this film hit you on this view? <laughs> I like how it. this series turned into this. <laughs> it's become a challenge. Yeah, it, yeah, it has. It, yeah, every time fantastic. now, every movie I watch, I'm very skeptical. What is the case Andy's going to make? <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, now I have a question for you before we talk about Now Voyager. Sure. A Betty Davis question. So... You talked about Betty Davis a bit last week as far as your, uh, you, you know, what you thought about Betty Davis. You had, you know, you didn't quite get it what people saw in her or the Betty Davis eyes sort of thing, all of that stuff. So what what is your experience with Betty Davis before this series started? Pretty limited. Uh, and so that's, I, you know, it was more the icon stuff than anything else. Uh, so, like, I, I'm pretty sure... 
uh, you know, I've seen All About Eve and uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, and mostly because they were sort of later in the career. Those were the movies my my folks were interested in. Those were the classics that my dad was watching. So that's those are the films that I was introduced to. So I hadn't watched these that we're we're doing. I'd never seen those, and. When I saw those earlier films, I was at a point where uh, I, I was not thinking about the actors as icons, right? I wasn't thinking about their s- sort of star power as I was watching. I was just thinking about them as the movie. Uh, they were just people in the movie. So uh, it wasn't until later and and probably, you know, the, when it became a pop culture thing, you know, Betty Davis eyes and, and that whatnot, that, that I became curious about how she became the actress that she did or the uh, how she became sort of posthumously famous culturally yeah you mean more so than she already was i mean just, that's mean, that's just what i mean of... culturally yeah it, it's like she yeah. became something like she became famous to people who did not know her as the actress betty davis interesting interesting <laughs> well did you did you just put your glasses <laughs> up on your nose as you said that did you did yeah, you tap so, your pipe let, let me let me study you a little bit more <laughs> this is worth some deeper analysis it certainly certainly is uh come to my cottage in the country where you can relax he's <laughs> <laughs> a sanatorium uh, that's right i actually really really love this film and so you do i, I do you do I, I, I do. And I'm really curious to see where this conversation is going to go because this, I think this is such an interesting uh, character film that I think could uh, fall into some seriously uh, schmaltzy melodrama. But somehow, because the characters I find really interesting and I really connect with, um, I think it ends up not it dances along that line, but I don't think it ever falls into into it. I think that it maintains itself well and creates a really interesting and complex story about a woman who's you know stuck in this in this situation, this this kind of this uh, controlling situation by her mother. It's, it's really about people in these relationships where they're kind of controlled by other people and. And how they find ways to get through that. And I really connect with this film. I really enjoy it. And now I'm curious to know what you think. Of well, it. no, I, you know, this was this was fine. It was fine. I didn't I didn't love it. I didn't really connect with it. And I thought I, I had some some challenges just like slogging through the the plot of the the overall narrative of her transformation and the uh, the weird celebration of infidelity uh, that seemed so out of context in this in this film, given the other films that we've we've talked about. The very strange relationships that they they end up sort of celebrating with between her and the doctor some of the language was was clever in the film she was uh, fine though the the weird sort of back and forth early in the film the back and forth kind of um, they, they did these uh, cuts that were that resembled flashbacks that were sort of ineffective on on me I it, it took me a while to figure out kind of what why is she going back and forth in this in the wavy screen uh, it, it seemed like a, they they could have been a little bit more linear uh, in just presentation of her of her voyage, and and so that confused me. And ultimately, uh, I found her transformation um, was was just sort of tough to swallow because of of where she came from. So I I didn't really connect with her relationship with her mother, and so when her mother died, uh, I, I it seemed like kind of an empty transition. 
which I know was supposed to have a great. So I each have a, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts on this movie. Like there's not, overall, I I like the people, but I feel like I I could wander on with the little things that just made me look kind of askance at it. So I'm sorry. No, I feel that's like fine. I owe you a, an apology. <laughs> I, I feel I, terrible. Well, good, good as you should. <laughs> no. It, no, but it's interesting because I think that a lot of that stuff might be there, but somehow I don't know if it's because uh, I've seen this uh, just so many times and I just kind of look past a lot of that stuff now, or maybe I just don't see uh, the problem in some of the things that you see or I connect with things that you're not connecting with um, that it just ends up working for me. I think the relationship with the mother and and kind of the control issues that that uh, dear old mom plays uh, obviously is is just a huge huge key part of the film and it, it really for me cements the this whole transformation and i really buy into her transformation and her ability to kind of finally break through that because of the help of the doctor and this this trip and through Jerry and and the way that he treats her and all of this stuff and see how she actually finally is able to kind of transform into something and uh, and I find her her voyage as she does so um, really strong and powerful and really um, it really connects for me and it really works for me and I think when she comes home. There are some really interesting scenes with her mother where it, it's as if she's going to lose all of that again. And I, I enjoy seeing that and how she finally is able to kind of pull herself through that and maintain a relationship with her mother while still uh, being kind of a strong person. And I think that is a really interesting um, element of the story that I kind of wasn't expecting and the fact that she is able to maintain that relationship and her and her kind of uh, uh, her acceptance for who she is and kind of force that upon her mother I think is so fascinating to watch and I love seeing her transformation over the course of this film from the really uh, as she uh, is described in the picture the uh, the fat old lady with the the heavy brows and the big hair or whatever <laughs> How, how she starts the film and, you know, then through the magic of, of going to the doctor, she, uh, you know, takes off her glasses and plucks her eyebrows and she's uh, Betty Davis, the beauty queen. And I think that's, it's really kind of a funny depiction. And I, I guess that's uh, an element of Hollywood in the 40s, yet definitely something that we still see today played where you take off your glasses and wow, I yeah. didn't know you were always so beautiful. And and I have to say, I am as superficial as the next guy in that regard. I really am. And I feel like you and I were kind of we came of age in the movies with those when when those movies were uh significant, right? Like Oh yeah. Those were the movies we grew up on, were the transformation movies, and it was it it was um and and so I I get it, and I have kind of a soft spot in my heart for those movies, and I'm not telling you that this didn't this movie didn't chip away at the at the uh, icy veneer that I have for the movie, Uh, because that (laughs) that part in particular, I you know her as when she comes back and she puts on the black dress and she goes in and she she has that first conversation with Dora the nurse, and I you know I actually that was one of the elements that I really 
really liked was her you know, her relationship with Dora and Dora sort of um, you know edging her back into uh, reality of this relationship with her mother. I thought that was a really nice touch, uh, and so there are some other elements about the the maternal relationship that I that I had trouble with, but um, you know ultimately like the black dress reveal the fact that she she her mother throws herself down the stairs and thus opens the door for uh for her to her daughter to take over you know throwing a party for the family i thought that was brilliant like that was just lovely and energizing and uh kind of thrilling to watch her become sort of the the butterfly uh, in the family and and how much it, it, her mother resented it. So there there are elements in that transformation that I really resonate with. That is that is true. I well, and the script this and the script goes in such interesting directions. Like I I never really know where it's going to go. And and I I'm guessing that you didn't either. It sounded like true, you might have no. had some issues with it because yeah. of that. But but I find it so fascinating that you're watching this story and it's like I I can't I can't figure it out. It, there's there are things happening and and directions that we're going that uh, are new and surprising to me. And for me, I counted that as a big win because I I couldn't I pinpoint it. And the fact that it ends where it does with her uh, taking care of Jerry's daughter uh, and not in a relationship with Jerry is just not what I was expecting for a kind of a romantic drama from the forties. You know, I was fully expecting her and Jerry to somehow end up together. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like this film ended up subverting so many things and so many elements of, of kind of expected romance, romance storytelling from the time in order to, uh, tell this story about this woman who needs to find who she is and the strength that she has at the end when she, um, as much as she wants Jerry, when she is able to tell Jerry, no, we can't do this. Otherwise, you know, the doctor is going to take uh, Tina away from me, which means that you're gone out of my life. And this is this is the only way that we can still have a little bit of something. And I think there's an amazing strength that she has kind of grown and uh, has found herself. And so I, I, I don't know. I guess I find it such an interesting exploration of her as a person and as a human and how she kind of grows into this place that is not just a woman who needs to have that man in her life all the time. See, now, I, I'll give you that it is an interesting story of her transformation, but, but man, I... The end, the resolution, when she actually says, uh, you know, we can't have this. I need to keep caring for your daughter. She needs me. Now's an important time. You need to go back to your wife and fix your family because your wife doesn't want your daughter. I found that so enormously frustrating. Like, it was such a, a, a cognitive dissonance for me. I couldn't hold all of those competing elements in my head because I was so frustrated by them. Um, I, I did not. I did not buy her uh, as her transformation into sort of the the nurse for in this sanatorium for this one girl. I I I couldn't I couldn't make heads or tails of it in my head. I didn't connect with it, and it really it caused the movie to end on on quite a, a down note for me. 
Which it is. I mean, it definitely is a down note. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a well. I mean, it's a narrative. Tragedy, yeah, it's definitely a romantic tragedy. But it had built up any of the earned goodwill of the narrative of the film. By the end, it was it was washed away because I didn't buy it. I I was not in it at the end. Oh no! Don't let's ask for the moon. You know, we we have the stars. It was a very famous line, and I'd never seen it delivered on screen. And I wanted it to mean something to me. But at the end, I was so torn up by the fact that they. That they had such a weird relationship that didn't seem appropriately sold to me. It never sucked me into the point where I I could actually uh, feel that emotional depth that I needed to feel at the end of this movie. It sprouted no man tears. So, and that's that's really interesting. So, it sounds like the the ending you would have preferred, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but is if he divorced his wife. And then he and Tina and uh, and Charlotte all kind of got together. I I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if that's the ending I I would have necessarily preferred. All I know is the ending I got is not an ending that rewarded me. Okay. Right. It, okay. it was it was either not, it was either sort of too sorrowful or not sorrowful enough. Like I I could have understood if she had somehow died you know i i could have understood if i mean let's let's really let's really you know if we're gonna do it let's do it let's make it let's make the loss of their relationship you know really something but but this is also on the heels of her telling uh what's what's his name her young suitor that she that didn't know her in his youth but came back and fell the elliot right elliot so this idiot elliot falls in love with her and they have the most banal breakup i have ever seen on screen it i was like kicking myself that was so stupid uh, i'm not sure should i kiss you now oh no let's not kiss let's just say goodbye. you know i'm uh, still no. going to see you so it was just so <laughs> stupid it was, so I, I just, it was just ridiculous it was so strange no i completely agree with that i'm like that is the <laughs> most strangely formal like end of a relationship i've ever seen <laughs> It's just awful. Oh, it's so so peculiar. And it's, I mean, in a way, I guess you could argue that it speaks to, uh, you know, what the relationship really was. Although I I really kind of agree with you. I'm just like, I just don't get that. I really don't get that. (laughs) (laughs) Such unearned formality. That's what it it was just not, it it just didn't fit. What do we think of Casey Robinson? Casey Robinson did the script based on the book. What what do we know of Casey Robinson? Now, I know Casey Robinson did some, I mean, he was a a big, he was a a contract writer in the 30s and 40s at Warner's. He was on Casablanca for a while. He's got some some big production credits uh, under his belt. But what do we think of of Casey Robinson as as the writer of this thing? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, And I I don't know really what to pin to Casey Robinson or to... Uh, to Prudy's original novel, as far as kind of the way that it's uh, written and the way that it unfolds, um, I, I, I guess I'm not exactly sure, um, really, you know, what to make of it. All I, I, I know that Casey Robinson wrote a good number of films with Betty Davis, like uh, I don't know, five or six different films that he he worked on for her, uh, with her. And um, so I, I think that, uh, although I, I should say that I don't think that she was. Um, on this film, actually, when he uh, was writing it. So I, I can't say that he was writing it for her or with her in mind or anything like that. 
but I, I don't know. I mean, my sense of the story is that it's it's a it's an interesting story, and I, I think the structure is interesting. Um, you already mentioned the flashback sequences. Um, it's a strange. I mean, I guess in context of the film, it makes sense to have them as flashbacks, the way that the story is told. But what a strange device. And I, I could not figure out why they chose, uh, why Irving Rapper chose to do them this way. Where Oh, when, Andy, when I'm so relieved to hear you say that. Well, because it's like you you dissolve into the pages of the book flipping back. And it's like, why are they forcing this reference to the source material in 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 the in the context of the flashback, like forcing a reminder that hey, don't forget, this is based on a book, folks. Uh, it's it's so weird, and I I really couldn't figure it out. And that is uh, it's one of the most peculiar things I've seen as far as flashbacks go. And it certainly is not something that I would recommend people do because it's really, <laughs> really awkward. I don't know if that's something Casey Robinson came up with or Irving Rapper. I don't know whose decision it was to do the flashbacks that way, but just very strange. Very, very strange. The the question I have for you as a fan of this movie is, do you think that flashbacks were, were if the, the, that mechanism, like the mechanic of the flashback was the right choice for the film? Could you have just told the stinking story start to finish? Um, well, so that means that we would have had, because the first flashback is when she has her little tryst on the boat. Yes, yeah, which was weird because she's like a 13-year-old talking about her lovemaking style. I don't think she's quite that young. Well, they made her up young. Yes, they definitely made her up young. But I don't think that, um, I mean, that would have essentially been the kickoff of the story. And I don't know, I feel like... I feel like that, uh, you know, I, I guess you could argue easier, did we need it at all, versus um, should we have started it and just done it linearly? That's actually my argument, is did we need that, right? Did we need her tryst on the boat? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the nice thing about having the tryst on the boat is we get a sense that she has had some explorations and she's tried things before. Um, just seeing uh, Charlotte at the beginning of the film... You almost would never expect her to have done anything out of the ordinary with a boy. You know, it doesn't seem like she would have ever tried anything outside of what her mother told her to do. So I guess the benefit to having that flashback is you do get a sense that Charlotte uh, has tried pushing the boundaries before only to have her mother kind of snap her back into place. You know, but this is one of those interesting examples, and I totally get where you're going, and I, I, I appreciate that because it's very much a show-don't-tell experience, right? I mean, but but I, I kind of feel like there are enough ancillary characters and enough of the, the sort of hen-style characters and the other aunts and cousins that are constantly around that we could have we could have achieved this in, like, one back-and-forth line, right? We could have said, oh, did you know? Oh, yes, yeah, she's, she's totally—she used to have a, a fling of, of a boy on a boat. Oh, really? Yes, but then her mother, you know, kicked her to the curb. And so, you know, I mean, we could have we could have had something, uh, some exchange like that, that told the story and moved us right into where she is. Yeah, and that you're, you're probably right. You probably could get rid of it and you wouldn't really miss much or just throw in a line of dialogue to cover it up. Likewise, you could also have done it just standard without having that wacky formula of the the, the pages turning. And then, yeah. then it would have just been a very straightforward uh, uh, flashback and it might have just been easier to take. Regardless, I think that uh, there are... There is an argument that we might not have needed them at all. That is the argument I'd like to stick with, sir. All right. Uh, 
Have you read any of the book? Did you have you read any of the Prudy? I have not. I have not. I know that she's written a few things that uh, I think this and Stella Dallas were both made into films. My my understanding is that the book uh, was all about Europe, and she was pretty uptight about that. That she she really really wanted them filmed in in Europe, in Italy specifically. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she and this is one of those funny things. You know, this novelist sells her book to Hollywood and then she has all these demands. She really wanted it filmed in Italy. Uh the book, you know, when they go on the when Charlotte goes on the voyage and meets Jerry, it's on this ocean voyage to Europe and it's all very romantic and European. But World War II was going on and they couldn't do anything in Europe. And so they decided, hey, let's just let's send them to Brazil instead, um, against Prudy's wishes. And then Prudy also wanted the film. She said, I want it to be shot in vibrant color and then I want the flashbacks to all be in black and white with subtitles which sounds really strange. And obviously they disregarded her completely. And uh, yeah, that's why you don't uh, let your novelists dictate how you're going to make your movie because that would have been kind of a peculiar one. I mean, it's artsy, I guess. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> what about the transition to Irving Rapper? Uh, he is done. He did a number of films with Betty Davis. This was the second of them. Uh, and he just he just kept coming back. Yeah, you know it's funny. He ended up doing five films with her, um, and uh, he did Shining Victory, This, The Corn Is Green, Deception, and Another Man's Poison. I think this is the only one I've seen. I might have seen Deception, but I don't think so. Uh, and honestly, I don't think I've seen anything else by Irving Rapper anyway. I think this might be the only film of his that I've seen. But it's interesting because as much as he, uh, you know, worked with Betty, I mean, he did five films with her. He said that she was very difficult to work with. And he said she had the tendency to hold the whole set hostage, stopping production for a day because of her mood. We already kind of talked about that a little bit on Little Foxes and how uh, she and Weiler had a big fight that uh, ended up with her leaving the set for like a week or two. Same thing here. I mean, I don't think it ever got quite so big, but she definitely had fights with him about decisions that were happening with her character and the way things were going. Um, and it made it very hard for him. Um, but, uh, you know, he still ended up living to be the ripe old age of 101. So it's not like uh, she took that many years <laughs> off in his life. <laughs> they say that he was, they, they, they call him the last surviving or, or was the last surviving director of the golden age of Hollywood at 101. That's that, that's a that's a tribute and it makes me feel bad that I haven't seen more of his stuff. Uh interestingly, he's he is the director that won uh, uh Robert Rich his Oscar, uh an Oscar Robert Rich was uh was the pseudonym of uh Dalton Trumbo while he was blacklisted. Yeah, that's for the brave one. Yeah. I, I think he does a fine job here. Um, you know, my sense based on on Prudy's comments about the flashbacks in black and white and all that, I am wondering if the book jumps back and forth with a lot more flashbacks because it's this kind of a strange comment to say, I want the flashbacks all in black and white and subtitles. It makes me feel like there must be more of them and the story is really kind of structured to kind of jump back and forth. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, it's fine the way that he ended up, uh, directing this, this, uh, this film. I, I think it works the, the structure that he has here. I don't think, um, any more flashbacks certainly would have strengthened it. No, that's the truth. <laughs> let's talk about first shot, last shot. Oh, let's. First shot, uh, we're, we're looking at the, we're close in on the veil block at the bottom of a statue in the pouring pouring rain at night we pull back slowly and tilt up to reveal the veil mansion the veils of boston i think there's a car pull up is that the deal that's what gets us in the house eventually 
think a car pulls up and they uh, uh, walk in yeah, or something like that. Yeah, right, right. Or a car drives by or something. I can't remember yeah, exactly, yeah. but yeah. That's the first shot. And then the last shot, of course, is the famous moment when Charlotte and Jerry are, are uh, they have their cigarettes and they've just said their famous line, uh, don't let's ask for the moon, we have the stars. As you've got a close-up of their two faces looking lovingly at each other and you push between their two faces out the window through the trees and up into the sky, which is full of stars and no moon in sight. Was was there a moon? Was the moon a theme that I just missed in the movie? No. Like when they're in the boat, did they keep cutting to a moon? Nope. Felt like there should be more moon given the last shot. <laughs> well, I think felt that's like the that idea. should be like a metaphor. Like they should, they, they sh- as if they lost the moon and now they don't need the moon because they have each other and they have all their little stars. <laughs> I don't know. How do these connect for you? You know, I I think that the first shot is definitely setting up our world. It's giving us a sense of this, this, the place that we are going to be in for the context of this film. This is a, a, a stately, rich, well, well well-to-do family in Boston, one of the name families. And, uh, and of course we meet them. It's, we, we meet them because of the name on this, this statue and it's night and it's raining. So it's, I don't know, it's a really interesting setup that really kind of, I don't know, it just makes, creates a whole bunch of gloom and doom and I think sets up nicely the story that we're about to uh, jump into. And then the last shot, I think that, you know, it's it's human faces. We start with the statue, we end up with a couple of human faces and we go out to to kind of this expansive universe. And, I, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, I'm a little torn on on what to make of this first shot, last shot as far as, how the theme is tied together, but I do find them interesting. Did you come up with anything? You know, not really. Uh, the, the obvious stuff is, uh, you know, the the journey into light of these characters, right? It's a it's the the resol- the redemption story of of their relationships. We start in the pouring rain, and the 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 rain ends up being a cleansing element, and she is cleansed of the baggage of her of her you know her mother and her relationships, and suddenly she gets wide open, clear sky, right? And that that but that feels a little bit too on the nose. I- I love the last shot of the film. I think that's a, a really strong final shot when we go up and we just see the stars. I think that's very beautiful. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's a strong connection between first shot, last shot thematically. Um, other than, you know, like like you already said, there's the rain connection. There's the cleansing on all of that. Um, we start with kind of a blocky, hard, you know, statue. We end up uh, with a very open, clear night. So, you know. I don't know. I, I'm not yeah. sold on the real thematic connection between these two. We've talked a little bit, obviously, about Betty Davis uh, so far. What else do we need to know about her and her relationship to getting to uh, this film? I, I think that it's it's important to know that this is a film more than, I think, pretty much any other film that she had been in, where at least up to this point, where she became really, really intensely involved. Uh, she she campaigned to get this part. Um, my understanding is that they were already looking at other actresses like Norma Shearer, Irene Dunn, Ginger Rogers. Um, but Betty, she just was, re- she had read the script and was really, really in love with this character. She thought she could bring a lot to it. And so uh, she actively campaigned to get it and she ended up getting it. I mean, but she was studying the book and she was just doing everything she could um, and as the film developed, I mean, she was really, really intensely involved in in making sure it really kind of came across authentically down to, you know, she worked with Ori Kelly, who is designing the costumes to help kind of really select the right look for her, both 
in the early stages and then the later stages um, once she's kind of blossomed and everything. Um, I think that says a lot that this is a film that she really connected with. I mean, she obviously found a strong connection with the character of Charlotte Vale and, uh, and really kind of, you know, felt that she needed to be the voice that, that brought this character to life. And I mean, I really think she does. I think both as the, um, as Aunt Charlotte at the beginning, when we have her, this really kind of dumpy, uh, Betty Davis with the really heavy eyebrows, really terrible clothes and terrible hair, um, all the way through her transformation and how just ravishing she looks in her different outfits and everything. Um, but beyond just the look, I think that she, there's so much going on with her in this performance that I find so fascinating to watch. I think she does bring so much to the table here and uh, makes this character her own and makes it a character that, I mean, like I said at the beginning, doesn't fall into just kind of melodramatic, uh, over-the-top performance, but really makes an authentic, uh, living, breathing character. I think her, the, you know, finding the things that I, I really enjoyed about her performance, when she first has that, you know, that, that pivot with her mother and they, they move into that phase of kind of detente when her mother knows realizes that, in fact, she's not going to be able to uh, push her around so much anymore. It's a result of this strength that, that Davis has on her face, in her eyes, uh, when she confronts her mother and, and tells her, I'm going to sleep where I want to sleep, you know, I'm going to sleep in the bedroom where I want to sleep, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I'll thank you to treat me like a guest, you know. Uh, I, I found that to be a, a real pinnacle in her performance in this film, um, more so, I think, than the than the actual uh, killing of her mother scene. And I have to compare that <laughs> with the killing of her husband scene in the movie we watched last week in Little Foxes, because so this funny. one was so anemic. Like, it was so bad. You mean on the mother's part as far as on how the, the mother's mother dies? part? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> goodness. The, the way that the drama of the little fox's death as he's struggling in the distance and it was it was shot so magnificently, right? You really appreciate the thought that went into the construction of the little fox's death scene. And in this one, we do a medium shot of the mom. She grasps her heart and her head flops over. And that's pretty much the end. <laughs> She's dead. Put a fork in her. Uh, oh, I, but I found was... that just sucked all the oxygen out of what could have been a really interesting scene. Oh, see, I think that's so interesting because it's so small. And so, uh, like, you almost don't even know if she's, like, passed out or, or died. And I think that's so interesting because Charlotte doesn't know. She doesn't even realize that anything's happened. And she It's not until she gets all the way up to her mom as she's talking to her where she realizes that something has happened to her. I, th- I think it's really interesting that that's the way they chose to do it. I love it. Well, and when she calls Dora in, Dora, Dora, come in here. And Dora walks leisurely across the room. <laughs> wouldn't you wouldn't you hustle a little bit? Hustle a little bit. Well, you don't know if anything's happened. You don't want to rush into a sweat. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, anyway, dear, dear. I yeah, see that that Andy for us we part ways. I I really found that that sequence to to have done a disservice to what we know Betty Davis is capable of delivering and I think it's uh, I think that's too bad. It is hard to take Betty Davis seriously when she's playing off such a enormously ridiculous death scene performance. 
That's that's funny. that's my that's my pitch. That's what you're saying. Gotcha. Paul Henry plays Jeremiah DeVoe Durance. Now we like him a lot. Obviously, we like him. We like him quite a bit. He plays the married man who won't leave his wife, but uh, is fine leaving his daughter uh, miraculously. <laughs> What is the deal with him and his philandering? The the philandering done in the film is done in a very, uh, very much a safe way due to the uh, the censors at the time, right? Like yeah. they don't really come out and spell it out for you. I mean, they they kiss, and that's virtually all we see. But obviously, they had a little tryst in Brazil. You know, they get stuck by the side of the road and end up kind of yeah. Luckily, there's a cabin where the crazy driver drove off the cliff <laughs> so that they could crash while he goes to get a, a horse or a car or whatever he goes to fetch. But um, yeah, it's it's a strange little dalliance that they have. And I, I think it's, a, it's kind of an interesting romance that is brought up here that uh, that these two kind of fall for each other. But it's done in such a way where it's like, I think that there's a real emotional connection. And it's one of those things where they have a little bit of a physical connection, but are, you know, he won't do that emotional connection thing. And, you know, it's a, it's the, I guess the old tried and true, uh, you know, affair in movies, right? Where the, they have a physical affair, but uh, he promises he'll leave his wife one day. And, you know, then <laughs> she ends up going crazy and boiling a rabbit in a pot. You know, I, I thought it just in terms of his performance, it was fine given what, it, you know, I've, I'm on the record as saying, I felt like that, that whole relationship was not uh, I don't feel like it was it was architected sort of well enough for me to buy it 100% and I found myself just sort of slapping my head a number of times but one thing I did not slap my head about when they were on screen together you definitely could feel uh, that sort of electricity and it was magnified a thousandfold by that super sexy cigarette trick (laughs) isn't that the best oh that's the best it made me wish all of us smoked don't smoke kids smoking kills (laughs) This is what I love about about stuff like this. And I mean, cigarettes, is, as awful as they are, you do something like this in a movie, and it's like, oh, God, this is why I should smoke, because look how sexy yeah. that is. I can see why it works. I can see why yeah. people would buy into it. I want to smoke just like just like <laughs> Betty Davis does, so that somebody like Paul Henry can light cigarette for me like that. <laughs> I mean, it's totally, this is why people started smoking, because of things like that. It absolutely is. <laughs> Uh, this is for those who can't visualize it. He he lights. He puts two cigarettes in his mouth and he lights them both, and then hands gets them both started, and then hands one off to her, and she takes it longingly, longingly. Oh, and, it's good. And sucks it down. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> it's very sexy, and uh, and a, a great trick. And they're they're great on on screen. Uh, he was in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I forgot about that. Yeah, I don't know why yeah, I forgot a- about that. That's a, that we we like him, right? We we're on the record. Absolutely. And and right after this, he does your favorite film, Casablanca. That was right after this, man. Right after the same year. Right. He and Claude Rains, our next guy, right? That's right. Claude Rains, Dr. Jake with uh running what has to be probably the most out of compliance uh sanatorium ever uh run. He you is know, the, Cla- his when- sanatorium is the reason there is regulation on healthcare providers today. <laughs> no, I like to think that when Claude Rains runs one, that it's just going to be okay in the end. Because <laughs> it's Claude Rains. It's, what it's could Claude go Rains. wrong? It's a free-range sanatorium. <laughs> I just love Claude Rains. Uh, Betty Davis said that he was uh, her favorite co-star. And I mean, I can see why 
they have amazing chemistry on screen. He's just an amazing screen presence. I mean, man, it's just so fun watching Claude Rains do anything on screen. It's it's just great. I just really enjoy him. I mean, he, whether it's malicious like he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or just kind of casual and fun like he is here or even kind of crazy like he is in Invisible Man. I mean, he's always great. I, I agree. I couldn't. Um, this is another point of emotional connection that I struggled with. I couldn't figure out. I, I, I felt very much like she was having uh, feelings about him as her doctor uh, that were uh, inappropriate. And he was having feelings about her the same way that were that were likely inappropriate and sort of unrequited. Hmm. Uh, and really? I, I thought that was a really, yeah, that was an interesting sense that I walked away with the, the film. And I, I thought that honestly would have been a more interesting and compelling uh, story than the one we got. Even, as much as I like Paul Henry, I, I, you know, that angle of the story I could, it was for the birds. I, I really wanted to see more of Claude Rains. That's odd. I mean, I, I like him as the doctor. I like him as this guy who's kind of helping her find herself. Uh, but then Paul also does that too. I mean, you know, when Jerry, uh, you know, kind of uh, clicks with her and, and starts sending her those flowers. I mean, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed all of the stuff going on with Jerry and everything in that relationship. Uh, and I never got a sense that uh, Dr. Jackwith had any interest in uh, Charlotte in any way other than just as a, a, a friend and patient and just wanting um, to help her. Now it's going to be the only thing you think about, though, because now I planted it in your head. No, I, that'll be an easy one for me to squash because I think it's absurd. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've already mentioned my love for Nurse Dora Pickford. I thought she was a, a wonderful addition in the house uh, when uh, Charlotte comes back after her trip to the sanatorium. Dora, played by Mary Wicks. Uh, ah, Mary you, you Wicks. You like her, huh? You know, it's, she's one of those actresses that uh, that really stands out. I totally agree. She was fantastic as as Dora, the nurse. I think that she brings a lot to the to that kind of character and the relationship as and kind of helping Charlotte and her mother um, kind of find their uh, their level of connection at the end there. But Mary Wicks, I mean, yeah, she had been in the Sister Act movies. She was uh, one of the gargoyles, Laverne, in Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, you know, it's it's just crazy to think that she had such a long career, and uh, you know, I think she passed away in 95. But uh, she did a lot of great stuff, and um, it's just funny to see her so early in her career right here. Really funny lady, and if you look through her her credits, I mean, you see her going from she did a lot of TV into the '60s, from like Bonanza to the Beverly Hillbillies to the Lucy, I love Lucy Show. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, she's she was all over the place. But uh, Jimmy Stewart Show in '71, she was on a, a number of times. So uh, she just is a, a really naturally funny person, and I'm I'm with you. It was such a treat seeing her in in uh, in here. I I didn't even recognize her until I looked at the credits. She she was so tall in this movie. And it felt like oh, yeah. Mary Wicks does not strike me as a tall woman. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I can't remember her in Sister Act as far as her height. But boy, yeah, you're right. She did seem just to really kind of tower over in this yeah. one. Let's jump into uh, getting it made. Yeah, Hal Wallace uh, produced this. This was... Um, you know, it's a little confusing. I mean, he's a guy who had been around for a long time. He had been involved with the production of more than 400 films in one capacity or another. We've talked about a few uh, Maltese Falcon and King's Row um, but it gets a little confusing because this was right around the time in his career where he ended up 
stepping away from Warner Brothers. Now, I think what happened is he had started kind of doing some independent production for Warner Brothers, and this was one of those films. But then the very same year, he also produced Casablanca, and he is really the guy who kind of made Casablanca happen. He came up with the last line. He was like very famous in the whole world of Casablanca. Uh, yet, when it, it went on to win Best Picture in 1943, when they announced Best Picture and he got up to go accept his Oscar, uh, Jack Warner jumped up and ran up in front of him and basically accepted the award as his own, even though Jack Warner, other than his name on the film, had nothing to do with it. And it was this strange little uh, kind of thing that happened to him and he kind of got stuck with that for the rest of his life, the fact that that he got shafted. And so uh, he ended up kind of leaving Warner Brothers. And so I, I, I was a little unclear. It, it was unclear to me if he started his independent production with Warner Brothers and then right away ended up leaving or if he was still doing some independent production after that had happened. I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, this all happened right around the same time. And he he left and he ended up still having a very successful career. But very interesting little story about him and kind of... Terrible situation for him. His films from Little Caesar in 1931 to Rooster Cogburn in 1975, I, like all of them are really terrific films in some capacity, right? He is, he's, he's one of those guys who really had his, his uh, proverbial finger on it. Oh, yes, he did. He was, uh, yeah. he was one of those people who just really knew how to make a good film. Just one thing about Saul Polito. I mean, I, I have already made a comment comparing cinematography of this film to The Little Foxes, and in particular that death scene. It feels really staged in this film for me. But that is not to say that Saul Polito isn't a, uh, a really terrific, one of the legendary, uh, you know, um, uh, cinematographers, 167 credits through 1949. Uh, and he has done uh, so many films with so many of the greats that it is just worth noting that, uh, I, man, no disrespect, because there is some great, great work in his catalog. And this film seemed just really staged to me. And I I, I sort of put that, I, I don't know where that rests, but it was just uh, not not much in terms of just the, the creativity uh, of it, with the exception of maybe that last shot I'll give you. Um, and, and, you know, kind of the way we look at Charlotte. Uh, for, there, there's a lot from the top of Charlotte in the first part of the film and from, the, from below in the last part of the film when she's kind of achieved her power, which I think is interesting visually. Uh, but generally, this is, it, it's pretty staged and, and not all that interesting. I, I definitely agree with you there, um, as much as I do uh, love this film. I wonder if it boils down to the fact that, I mean, really, Saul Polito started his career almost a full 10 years before Greg Toland did. And I wonder if it's just kind of, you know, that having that ingrained, uh, just kind of the structure of film and just how films were put together at the time. True. And, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a thing. And, and that's just how he went about doing it and didn't change that much. Because, I mean, I mean, even something that's just beautiful to look at, like um, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is just a really stunning film to look at, it still feels very staged, as beautiful as the film is, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, same thing. Uh, I, I think that could be said of his films is that they, they still have a very staged set look, like they, their movies told on a set in Hollywood. Um, whereas Greg Toland, I think, um, you know, might've just come from a different, uh, time that was trying to do something a little different. So uh, this is my take on it. I don't really know. I'm speculating, but based on the look, I could say, I could make an argument for it. No, I, I buy that. You wanted to talk a little bit about Warren Lowe, uh, in editing. Well, less about Warren Lowe, who, who was the editor for this, more about the fact that Don Siegel was actually credited on this film as doing as I, I guess he was helping with the montages is kind of what his credit reads, which uh, I, I'm not 100% sure the, the specificity of what that is. The only thing I can think of is, you know, he must have been, you know, helping with when they were doing all the, the stock footage of Brazil and kind of you know, what you know what Brazil looked like and all that sort of stuff as these guys were going around, but it's just interesting that this is you know a place where uh, Don Siegel kind of got his start before he you're, really moved on to do some bigger things. You're talking about Don Siegel, like Dirty Harry Don Siegel. Yeah, the Don Siegel, exactly. That Don Siegel, <laughs> right? Escape from Alcatraz. Yeah, this yeah. is he started as an editor. I mean, he was. I think he didn't start directing until the uh, the mid '40s, so soon after this. But before that, yeah, he had been doing editing uh, in the late '30s into the early '40s, and so um, and it was all montage credits. And so, yeah, all of his editing <laughs> credits great. are montage. So, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. A- any notes on the music? I just love it. Uh, it's just big romantic music and i just uh i think that it's just something that i just fall in love with i think it's it's just you know there's it's sweeping it's it's kind of romantic it's sweet it's tragic it kind of has all of that and i think max steiner did a great job with it i love it i i I, you know i agree with you i think he did a great job with it it is all of those things that you said it makes me think of just about any of the most romantic moments and so we'll call that a win there you go how to do it award season well, speaking of Max Steiner, he actually won an Oscar for this, uh, for best score for dramatic or comedy picture. So uh, congrats, Max. Uh, you did a great job here. Betty Davis was nominated for best actress and Gladys Cooper nominated for best supporting actress. They both lost to uh, Mrs. Miniver. Greer Garson took best actress and Teresa Wright, who we talked about last week, uh, walked away with best supporting actress. So uh, congrats to them. But uh, yeah, it left Betty and Gladys uh, with... Uh, with nothing to take home. Bereft. Mm. Bereft. Indeed, uh, indeed. Any any other... This was never remade, right? Sequels, prequels. It's just what it is. It is what it is. You know, it's an interesting... Uh, I mean, it's a book. I would be curious to... I don't know. Now I'm actually kind of curious to read the book and see how it deals with the flashbacks and all of that. And if it really is something that um, a a modern filmmaker could take and do something else with and and make something interesting with it. Um, But yeah, I don't, I couldn't find anything of anybody who had done any sort of remakes with it. So I'd be curious if someone has, but I didn't find any. How did it do in the box office? Well, now Voyager ended up costing $761,000 to make, which in today's dollars is just over $11 million. Uh, pretty reasonable. It opened in New York October 22nd, 1942, then opened wide across the country on Halloween, the same weekend as I Married a Witch with Veronica Lake, Frederick March, and Robert Benchley. 
This movie wow. ended up grossing, uh, yeah, and it ended up grossing 2.2 million, or about 32.5 million in today's dollars, giving it an adjusted profit per finished minute of 181,535 dollars. Well, so it did all right. Did all right for itself. It, yeah, uh, you know, I, too. Looking at what some of the critics said at the time, um, you know, I I think that people might agree with you, Pete. I, they seem to say that it's got, you know. Uh, find it a little kind of, uh, you know, not that great. It's not very effective. It The logic is a little uh, strange. Um, it doesn't resolve its problems as truthfully as it pretends. But a lot of people connected with it. I'm certainly one of those people. Um, you know, I think there's a little bit of a romantic in me that really just kind of found the story to be uh, very sweeping and, and, uh, and powerful. But, you know, it's one that I think left people mixed. I always learn more having had these conversations with you, and I, while my opinion, I have to tell you, has not necessarily changed on the film overall, I certainly, I love that you love this film, and I love that you have that connection with it, because um, it, ma- it makes me appreciate it that much more. Well, and I certainly hope that, I mean, between Little Foxes and this, that at least you may not be falling in love with Betty Davis, but I'd like to think that you're seeing a good variety of stuff that she can do. I mean, some very different characters between these two films. Absolutely. And, and I feel like I'm, you know, we're getting into, you know, well-trod ground here with where we're going from here, uh, you know, films that I have seen. And so I'm really looking forward to making some new connections uh, now because it's been a long time. But before we do that, we should probably rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you're going to look for Now Voyager, and it's frustrating because there's a comma in it. So yeah, <laughs> I know, stupid. stupid is that, stupid It's one of those things where people need to, I don't know how you do it, but internally it needs to be listed with Now comma Voyager and Now no comma Voyager. Yes. You know? Yes, that is a truth. That is, it should, we should take it as axiomatic. Uh, anyhow, so find this movie, uh, 1942, now Voyager, Betty Davis, and rank along with us. We'd love to to see uh, how this does on your flick chart. Andy, how do we start? All right, first off, we have the now Voyager or the Road Warrior, Mad Max Two. If you're worried, I- Pete. I'm going with the Road Warrior. Okay. Oh, thank God. <laughs> we don't have to start fighting yet. Okay. okay I could good. sense that you were getting nervous. <laughs> I just wanted to help you out. <laughs> okay. Good. Awesome. Awesome. Off to a great start. Yes. What's next? All right. The next one is the host, little uh, Bong Joon Ho. I am. I am definitely now Voyager on this one. I had so many problems with the host. I know, I know, and I, I, I hate that we're going to start this right away. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready? All right, I'm ready. One, One two, two, three, three rock. What was that? What was what? That, that was a delay. There was, was no delay. A- well, there was a delay on the ones, twos, threes, but we said paper and rock right at the same time. Uh, on my end, it was like rock. Paper. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. No, no, no. I said it at exactly. It it hit my ears as as I said it. All right, I'll give it to you. Asterisk. What was that? You see, you think <laughs> I, you, asterisk? <laughs> you think I would cheat you? No, I I don't. But it seemed awfully suspicious. <laughs> uh, next up, we have now Voyager or say anything. Interesting. Interesting. Now, 
this is something that I, I noticed after uh, our conversation last week. Uh, well, because we ranked the, uh, the little foxes against Say Anything. And how strange was it that, and I didn't, it didn't hit me at the time, but it's, it's such a similar film to Little Foxes. It's about a young, naive girl who falls for a boy and who has a parent who is in doing much more duplicitous stuff than she ever realizes. But because of that, she ends up growing and moving past that and finding that she has to escape that life in order to move on with the boy that she loves. I love that you found that connection and that it was the same as Say Anything. I just, I, I, I wish I had seen the Say Anything, the grand death scene would have been great. <laughs> uh, but, but interesting that it's, that it, you know, I, I think on rewatching Say Anything, we both had some issues with it. And, and, um, and so I'm curious where this is going to land for you. I, I'm thinking you're going to pick, uh, anticipating you're going to pick Now Voyager. You're anticipating correctly, and and you know I think I had enough challenges with uh, with say anything that I'm going to give you now Voyager. I'll take it. Oh, here's here's one that we haven't seen in a while. Now Voyager or the 1945 film noir Detour. Oh, Detour for me, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm going to pick now Voyager. I don't feel like they're too far apart, but I still feel strong enough about Now Voyager that I will Rochambeau it. That is that is pretty strong. Well, you know, if feeling if that. I like it if I like it more, I'm gonna I'm still gonna stick to my guns, right? No, that's I mean that's fair. <laughs> I think we I think we liked it. Uh, I think we really liked Detour, and I think it would it would be a fair it would be a principled win. I, I'm gonna stand way. up for Detour. I'm gonna stand okay. up for Detour. All right, let's do it. One, One two, two, three, three scissors. Okay. Oh, All, right. All right. Now Voyager or Alien 3? I'm going uh, to say Now Voyager. Yeah. I know. <laughs> this is... This, Mama! There, there's got to be a word for this. There's got to be a word for this. It's not a flick chart hate crime. It's actually, you know, I I mean, I'm being mean. Alien Three actually isn't. uh, I was, I was thinking of Alien Resurrection, which is really. Oh, I know. Alien Three is not the worst. It has. It feels it's it's the glorified music video is what it is. Um, (laughs) uh, um, I am still. I think I am still going to pick it. I'm going to pick. Are you really? Yeah. Yeah. Really. You feel that I'm surprised? Doing, I'm doing now Voyager, and I, I do feel a little surprised, but it's okay. I, I I understand you're picking it. Okay, all right. Let's all do right, this. Ready? Let's do it quick. Pull it. Pull okay. off the bandaid. Here we go. All right. One, One two, two, three. three rock. rock. Oh, crying out loud. Okay. <laughs> One, One, two, three. three scissors. Paper. Oh, you yeah, cut me. That got a sting. It's not that bad. Uh, okay, now Voyager or David Fincher's The Game. We also had some interesting challenges with The Game. I don't think we had as many as I have with this one. I'm going to say The Game. Good, me too. I, I don't have, uh, surprisingly, so many people have issues with that one, and I don't have any of those issues. I really with like the that game? Film. No, we talked about all the, the weird socioeconomic stuff and the ignorance yeah, of yeah. the film. Like uh, we had We had our fair share of conversation points. Yeah, I know, but I just it's it's such a fun film to watch. It's the definitely the one I'm picking. So all right, all right, I could argue about it, but but let's why? Agree. Let's, agree, let's to agree, agree to agree. 
<laughs> okay. Now Voyager or Spies, Little Fritz Lang silent film. I'm saying oh, now Voyager. Because I know that this is really you're now Voyager? Why are you so surprised? <laughs> well, because last time we had this thing and you picked Fritz Lang. You picked uh, I Metropolis. Picked Metropolis. I know, but I love <laughs> now Voyager. The Little Foxes I found to be a really interesting film, but it's not one that I love. All right. I'm going to give you the Little Foxes. You mean now Voyager? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna give you now Voyager. What movie are we talking about? Whichever one you want, Andy. You can have it. <laughs> uh, now Voyager or uh, Seconds? I'm gonna say Seconds. Really? Yeah. John Frankenheimer does it. John Frankenheimer is what it takes to beat this film. I, it's I've I have picked other films that have beat this. I know. There's a lot of creep factor in Seconds. I'm gonna give you that. Yes. Let's do seconds. Such an interesting film. Well, that puts it at 219. A few spots uh, higher than Little Foxes. I would have probably put it up higher, but you know what? It's okay where it is. Um, uh, and I know that you probably feel it's perfect where it belongs. I'm here. not even sure that it's perfect. I think it probably could have taken a fall. Uh, <laughs> 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 but that's okay. I am, As I mentioned, I am excited with where we're going from here. Where are we going from here? What is the next Betty Davis film? And does she kill a parent or a spouse? <laughs> uh, only with her eyes, I think, in this <laughs> next one. We are going to be uh, jumping up to 1950s Best Picture winner, and we're going to be talking about all about Eve, and very much looking forward to that one. Excellent, excellent. What does this do for your letterbox ranking? I'm assuming you're a five star on this film. I'm actually four and a half. I, you know, there are things like Elliot's departure, a few little things like the weird flashbacks, things like that that kind of just keep it from really hitting that five star. So it's four and a half for me. I'm going to give you a solid two and a half for me. Woof. Yeah. I don't feel like we've had a split like that in a while. I know. What's that all about? So much for my case for Betty. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, Andy. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling next week. You are gonna. You're gonna. Things are gonna change for you. I can feel <laughs> we it. Shall I see feel it. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, I think you know where you can find me, Andy. I gotta go to bed. Oh, Pete. Shall we just have a cigarette on it? Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth, Pete. But you know what? Amazon didn't giveth much this week. <laughs> That's because everyone loves it like me. <laughs> everyone stinking loves this movie. <laughs> 90% uh, five-star rating on this film. So I went ahead and I picked a five-star. Uh, that um, We'll see if this reveals anything you didn't already know or feel. Already? Are you ready? Very sporting of you, old chap. Yes, you know, I'm just trying to play the game, Andy. <laughs> Getting out from under a controlling mother, says Viva from 2007. Excellent, beautifully costumed and lit film of 1942 starring young Betty Davis as a woman who gets out from under her bossy mother's thumb long enough to blossom into a sophisticate who falls in love with an unhappy married man. Later, she helps his sad daughter out of her depression. Good story and cast... I tell you, that controlling mother of hers threw herself down the staircase on purpose. My mother, my mother, my mother, my mother. 
and scene. It's almost like a poem at the end there, right? Right? Yeah, she really kind of launched into it, uh, Viva. I thought that was uh, something. And, you know, in case you didn't know, that controlling mother of hers threw herself down on the staircase on purpose. If you missed in the movie where the controlling mother looks slightly off left of camera, <laughs> stares at the stairs, and then throws herself down them. <laughs> Just in case you get really confused in, by in what In case she's you missed that. There. Yeah. Yeah. That's somebody yeah. who doesn't understand subtext and doesn't understand <laughs> right. body language. And unless they said it, I didn't see anything. I'm going to throw myself down these stairs, I think. <laughs> What's uh, yours? Well, well, I've got a three-star by Wayne, who uh, who said, I recently acquired the DVD presentation of Now Voyager. Am I the only one to notice that a key scene has been left out? I believe there was a montage sequence showing the physical change in Charlotte, makeup, diet, exercise, etc. This scene is not in my print. There is a still of this transformation in Gene Ringgold's book, The Films of Betty Davis. Also left out of my print is the scene where Ilka Chase, as Davis's sophisticated sister-in-law, offers to loan Davis a wardrobe to wear on the cruise and to mark the garments with notes to Charlotte so she will know which accessories to wear with each dress. This renders a later scene meaningless. Warners were lax and have spoiled a classic for me. Wow. Now... I think that's a little harsh there, Wayne. Uh, one, uh, just, you know, you know, the, the way that movie making works is sometimes they film scenes and they don't end up in the movie themselves. Um, I have never seen a montage sequence showing, uh, Charlotte's physical, uh, transformation. And I think that would actually spoil the entire point of her big reveal when we see her walking, just like we see when we first meet her, we see her feet. And then second time we meet her, we see her feet and we then get to see her face in both cases revealing right. the the new charlotte and that would ruin the entire point of that second reveal and i have a sense that the filmmakers understood that and chose not to include that montage that yes they probably shot and yes gene ringgold's probably got some of those stills to include in his book as far as the sister-in-law's bits, again, they probably edited some of that out because they're like, you know what? We show the tag on the dress. We we get it. We don't need to kind of beat the audience over the head with it so they get it. So I, I think wow. that uh, that Wayne has some uh, some unfounded issues with this just because he saw a few stills. Uh, but the funny thing is that looking at people's comments about it is some people get really uh, convinced that they've seen it. And some people just down and out refuse because of Wayne's comment, refuse to watch the movie or buy the movie or anything until Warners can get their act together and fix this egregious error of theirs. Wow, you you went opinionated on this one. I, I, I kind of did a little bit. Sorry. Uh, let me put my soapbox away. That was that. That was <laughs> I'm just saying it's not that it was not that it's not, it's just heavy for an Amazon block. Usually it's all jokey yeah. and you were like you really you brought the rain. Well, I read this and it just I guess I got a little my it got my ire up. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> I I know I, I I like you like this, Andy. <laughs> Would you like a cigarette on it? <laughs> Don't let's ask for the moon, Andy. We have our podcast. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. 
For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season six, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. No, hold on. Hold on. No, it's my turn. Ah, damn. First up, disease films. Uh, okay. Uh, well, there's The Omega Man and The Andromeda Strain. Um, oh, and Blindness. One more. One more. Um, oh, Children of Men? That's the one. Okay, how about It's Real Life, Jack? Oh, that's easy. Black Hawk Down, Seabiscuit. Betty Davis. Uh, uh, the Little Foxes. Um, whatever Happened to Baby Jane, now Voyager. Okay, this one's easy. The Godfather Trilogy. <laughs> well, The Godfather. Oh, so good. Well, we've covered lots of great movies that started out as books. Books like The Danish Girl, Certain Women, Howl's Moving Castle, or The Black Stallion. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.